0: Butch also hosts a call through Athlete 911 in last evening, which is a great segue into tonight's conversation. He had Pat Casey, who discussed with and gave ideas and his thoughts, which I thought were absolutely on point. And, and, And if you didn't hear that, there is a podcast, there is a recording from last evening And he talked about approach and mindset as it relates to hitters. And I think tonight we'll be able to continue along those thought processes as we get into the mindset of a major league hitter, his preparation, his routines, his drills, and so forth. And those are available as will Tonight's call will be available in a recording uh, via podcast on Spotify that Brian puts together uh, the following morning. And go back and listen to some of the ones that we've had in the past. But again, these are not meant to be controversial. They're not meant to be proprietary in any way. They're simply meant to allow student athletes, parents, coaches, to join in in discussion, ask questions, but most importantly, to gain access into the mindset of those that have done it at the game's highest levels. And that's where we will continue to come from. Each week as we go forward, letting people know that next week at the request of several parents, we will be doing college recruiting and Butch and I will will speak at length on that. And I I am efforting to have a few college coaches join us and we'll be discussing that with Butch, but I know that that seems to be on everybody's mind. So without further ado, I want to bring Michael Kadire into the conversation and a 15-year major leaguer. I can remember seeing him in a, new, in a Minnesota Twins uniform for the most part, Colorado Rockies, New York Mets, but 15 years in the big leagues. And so I want to let people know that your average major leaguer will have a, a two and a half to three year major league career. Over the years, there have been over 20,000 major league ballplayers throughout the history of the game. And approximately ten percent of those twenty thousand have had careers in excess of ten years. So it speaks volumes to not only the ability level of a player to be in the game that long, that time period of fifteen years, but to be a hitter and to maintain that level of excellence over that period of time. That speaks to the not only the ability but the work ethic and the preparation that Michael Kadiar obviously had throughout his career. and I'm getting a lot of questions, but I think the first question uh, as I bring you in here, Michael, is to ask you specifically about your youth or amateur days as a ball player leading into your foray into professional baseball as a hitter and some of the things that you did to, to get yourself on the radar, for lack of a better term.
1: Sure. Walter, I appreciate you having me. Last week, we talked, I stumbled on this. We can thank the algorithm of Twitter for putting me on this, uh, on this, uh, this space. And I really enjoyed the conversation last week. So when you invited me afterwards to come back and talk about hitting this week, I, I got excited. So I've been looking forward to it this week and excited to join everybody and excited to, to join this forum. And I appreciate the introduction as well. Thank you for that. When speaking about my youth in baseball, for me, I I started playing when I was six, seven years old. And I always ask young guys, and and I have a 13-year-old son, and I I help coach with their baseball team. And I always ask them, what do you love about baseball? And obviously, you get some answers. I love hanging out with my friends. Just love something to do during the summer. You get all types of different answers. For me, I loved stepping in a batter's box. I loved digging in um, my foot to the batter's box. I loved what it felt like to have to, to grip the handle of a bat. I loved everything about practice, and I couldn't get enough of it. I, I loved sitting in my driveway and, and taking swings off of, you know, I was a New York Yankee fan. I loved, I loved being every hitter in that lineup. Just taking dry swings, never even hitting a ball. I, I remember I would sit out in my driveway, and I, I swear I've hit 5,000 game seven winning home runs in my life, because that's all I did in my driveway. I just, I just really loved it. I remember when I was seven years old, I went to Old Dominion. I'm from the southeast corner of Virginia, where Old Dominion University is, and I went to an Old Dominion University clinic, and the guest clinician was Hank Aaron, and uh, I was seven years old. And Hank Aaron's talking about when he was a kid, how he used to swing the bat 50 times a day. And me just obviously in awe that it's Hank Aaron and and wanting to be like him and wanting to just love having a bat in my hand. I said to myself, I was going to swing the bat a hundred times a day. So from that moment at seven years old until the time I was probably 18 or 19 years old, that's what I did. Usually pretty much about 300 days out of the year. I took a hundred swings a day and I would say 60 to 70% of them. I never even hit a ball. I mean, it was just dry swings in my garage or dry swings in the driveway. And, and it was just on my own. It was just because that's what I love to do. And obviously as I got into to high school and, and my buddies started enjo- joining in with me, we would go to the batting cage and I'd hit, hit live BP or hit off the tee, but it was my therapy. I I and I still, to this day, I'm six years retired and I'll still find a cage and, and hit off of a tee just because I just enjoyed it. And like I said, it was my, it's my kind of therapy. It's my time to be alone. Usually when I started getting back into the swing of things, no pun intended, around the first of January, getting my hands back ready to get into the, to get ready for spring training, it would be by myself. I would get up basket of, ball, of balls a bucket of balls I'd go into a cage with a tee by myself for like the first three to four weeks and it would just be me and the tee and I would just hit and, hit and hit until I was until I felt I was good and then so, so as long as I can remember that's what I loved about baseball and that's what I love about hitting and I love talking about it and that's the passion of mine and a, and a roundabout answer that's my background as far as kids my my childhood and and hitting One of the
0: takeaways that I have from just listening to you is the, as far as being a young player and the enthusiasm and the passion and and the love for the game. And as a hitter, when you mention your work on a tee and you're by yourself, and I have nothing, I've done instruction for parents and student athletes, but I noticed that you would say, working with your hands, working with a bucket of pearls and a tea by yourself. So would you tell younger student athletes that a good way to re to begin your season, whether it's during the winter in anticipation of the spring, that sometimes you can work on your own, by yourself, and just getting yourself ramped up, so to speak. Yeah. The tea work, I think, is an underrated or underused tool for younger hitters. So if you could just speak to the, the, the use of the T and moving the T around and, and what you're working on as far as high T work and T placement and things like that is so that younger hitters can do some, some drills on their own.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like you mentioned, T work is a tremendous tool, but just like every other tool, we need to know how to use the tool and, the T work is no difference because you could definitely get into some bad habits with a T as well. And I think it takes a, a a self-awareness to understand what your goal is. And this is what I tell young kids all the time. Anyway. And when I say young, more high school, I don't even, I don't mean younger than that's a totally different subject. But when I say young hitters, we're talking about high school at this particular moment, when you're getting into the eighth, ninth grade, the days of going into the cage, just for the sake of going into the cage, need to come to an end. And what I mean by that is every single time you step into the cage, there should be a purpose and there should be a reason you're stepping in the cage. And there's many reasons for that. And I talked about how in early January, I would get into the, into the cage with a tea and a bucket of balls by myself. My purpose was strictly just to get my hands back in shape in hitting shape. I wanted to work my calluses back. I wanted to get the blisters back. And that was literally my only goal for the first two or three weeks of me getting back into the swing of things, back into the cage. And what that allowed me to do is that one, I had a specific game plan, but number two, I was able to forgive myself on the bad swings. So I was roll over and I wouldn't get mad at myself because my particular goal was literally just to get my hands back in shape. Now, as that off season progressed, as I got into the latter stages of January, I started moving to, to moving the tee around. Maybe I'm working on hitting the ball in the, to the to the right center field gap. Maybe I'm working to hitting the ball to the left center field gap. Now my goals have changed. Now I pay a little bit more of attention of how the ball is coming off the bat, where the ball is going, what the spin's looking like off my bat into the net. And then as I get it and progress even more, getting into spring training, I'm starting to face pitchers. Again, I take it slowly. So the first couple of days I'm facing BP, I'm just wanting to get my eyes used to seeing a ball come at me again. And again, now I'm able to forgive myself on bad swings. I'm not there just crushing myself mentally. And as I continue to get used to that, my eyes get used to it. My goals change again, but everything starts with the purpose and that purpose of that day. And I would have to stick with that purpose, one, to have a plan, but two, to be able to not crush myself mentally and not for, and be able to forgive myself on bad swings. Because if I can't do that, man, I'll sit in the cage for hours and hours and ultimately lead to injury.
0: What I like most there is how you're talking about being able to forgive yourself. And, and, and as silly as that sounds, younger hitters, you can't get all caught up Not only in a swing, but an at bat. I call it flushing. Being have the ability to Mm -hmm. flush and build through that, uh, you know, that negative rep and and create a mental awareness and preparation for a good event, a good rep, and building off of what you might call one bad swing, two bad swings, getting the ball to the back of the cage or, or whatever your purpose is while you're working your hands. Let's get to some questions because. I have a couple here that have come in and do you have any tips for making the transition from success in the cage practice training to success in the game controlled versus uncontrolled specifically for younger athletes and your son is 13 so specifically for younger athletes 12 to 13 12 to 14 years of
1: age I think first and foremost and this is hard to do and it's a buzzword and, and we talk about it a lot is is being process oriented and not results oriented and i think that's the biggest thing and what i try and, and talk to my son about is when you talk about having success in the cage translating to success on the field oftentimes we can't control that success right we can't control what the pitcher's doing we can't control all of these variables that lead to quote unquote success all we can do is prepare ourselves in the cage the best we can but also prepare our mind get our minds for getting into the box and getting ourselves ready to hit and then we can now we go compete against this pitcher that's all we can do that's all that's the that, that's all we can control now the only thing we can control is trying to get a strike putting a good swing on it and then after that we can't control it again cuz now Maybe the shortstop's a, a really good shortstop. He makes a great play in the backhand. He throws us out. Well, now is that a bad hit? No, we hit the ball. Shortstop just made a good a good play, but that doesn't translate into success. So what I try and, and talk about is you go in and you prepare in the cage and you go and you, you do your drills in the cage and you, and you feel good in the cage when you get out into the game, that's the test. You just go to do the best you can on the test and whatever happens, the variabilities that we can't control, sometimes are going to get us and sometimes we're going to get the best of them.
0: I, this, I hope people, I I am literally taking notes because these are things that I like to use when I have access to somebody like Michael Kadiar or, or a professional athlete that has played the game at the highest level. I'm always learning terminologies and, and, how to get the best out of our repetitions. So the next question comes in, how do you teach or how do you learn soft versus hard focus from the on-deck circle to the, to the batter's box? I think what he's asking is, at what point do you start to teach young hitters soft versus hard focus as it relates to hand separation and when they're picking up the ball, et cetera?
1: That's a tremendous question, and we can get as in depth as you want on that.
0: Fire away. That's what we mental, want.
1: That's... Yeah, there's mental exercises. Even with our, I started at 11 years old with these, with, with our kids, in mindfulness and learning how to check in and check out of the games. You know, Baseball is, as much as we don't like to say it, it's a slower game. Meaning, I don't need to scan the scan the court every second in order to know where my pick is coming from, in order to know where to pass from, is coming from, in order to know where to take my shot from. Baseball, there's a play. You wait about 8 to 10 seconds, there's another play. There's an, there's another action. Wait about 10 or eight 8 to 10 seconds, boom, there's more action. The earlier you can learn how to check in and focus and check out is going to benefit you the most. And you'll see a lot of guys, and I think this was a – one of the reasons why a big complaint is not allowing to step out of the box. It's not so we can fix our batting gloves. It's not so we can look good for the camera or whatever. It's literally teaching ourselves how to check in and then allowing ourselves to check out for a few seconds so we mentally can get back in and then figure out our game plan for the next pitch. For me, for instance, I had a spot on my bat Every single, it was, it was literally, if anybody ever remembers me hitting, I, I was DJ Buner style pine tar. I really caked my, my bat with pine tar. I had a natural colored bat. I caked it with pine tar. So when I hit home plate, all I could see was the barrel of my bat. I had a spot on that bat. So after the pitch would come, I'd take my left foot out of the box and I would stare at that bat and I'd stare at that one spot. And what that was allowing me to do is, is allow me to forget five seconds, to forget about what everything is going on. So I then I could check back in. And when I checked back in, I was all in. I was all in. I was focused. I was ready to go. I was thinking along with the catcher. I was thinking along with the pitcher. I was thinking of, of reports. I was in the flow of the game. But had I not had that, that spot on my bat that allowed me to check out, in between every pitch, my mind would be constantly, constantly moving, and I would end up being, I would end up going numb, and then I'd be thinking about where are my hands or, or my feet, or I need to stay back, or I, I need to get quick to this pitch or quick to that pitch by allowing myself to check out. I allowed myself to forget about those things. And then five seconds later, boom, I'm able to get focused again. So by practicing those things and with our kids, I would, I would tell them to look at a, a tree, look at a specific tree at our field or whatever it is. And in between pitches, stare at that tree. And then once the game comes back in again, boom, I'm ready to lock in whether I'm on defense or whether I'm at the plate. Pick something out that allows you to check out for a couple seconds, which then allows you to be able to check in with a fresh mind.
0: Okay, now the question is, how do young hitters learn to find pitchers' tells? So I'm <laughs> assuming that they are asking, at what point are you able to find out if a pitcher is throwing a fastball versus a breaking ball or a changeup, etc. So, how yeah. do you teach or instruct, or where within the delivery do you find a pitcher? Pitchers tell. Sure,
1: sure. Now that's a great question too. And this this past summer, I was fortunate enough to be uh, on the coaching staff of, of the 18U national team, and during trials and during uh, PDP player development program, and then during our, our series with Canada I was this is what I was showing our guys on the bench and it's just watching the pitcher and it's not looking for anything specific obviously there's certain things you can look for as a pitcher as a hitter looking at a pitcher's glove is he fanning his glove on a change up I used to look I could tell by the way that he would shake so if I knew a guy you know you, you face these pitchers that are you know, for a lack of a better word, a macho mentality. And you got a good idea of what the catcher's calling. The catcher puts down an off-speed pitch, and he'll give that – the nose will scrunch up, and he'll, he'll shake. What are you kidding me? I'm not throwing an off-speed pitch right here. And, I, and, and those types of things, is if, if you're just in tune with the game, you'll start seeing those things as time develops. Now, I didn't know these things when I was 15, 16 years old i used to this was as after time would go on oftentimes in high school i remember guys pitchers would hold the grip in their behind their back as they're getting the sign or they would move it just little things that you would think is obvious are not so obvious to everybody else and and those are the things you you look for how does he come up in in the stretch does he come up when on, As a fastball, does his hands come set at his letters? And then on an off-speed pitch, does his hand come, hands come set down by his belt buckle? A lot of times pitchers have different motions and different setups based on the pitch they're throwing just because of how their arm – can. as a high school player and even younger, and even into college, the arm consistency is not there. That's what pitchers strive for is to have the arm consistency. When you're watching – videos and you see the overlays and, and all the pitches look the same until they get right up to the plate and boom the slider goes one way the the curveball goes another way changeup goes another way they all have because of that they have inconsistent arm motions and maybe they're a little bit longer on the curveball a little shorter on the fastball and because of that they have to set their their have to have their setup differently And so those are things that I would look for as well. But it's all about paying attention and looking at the pitcher and seeing if you notice anything different, if you notice a little bit different. And it might not be obvious, and sometimes it might be really obvious.
0: Did you have any pitchers who gave you trouble? And if so, what was it about them that gave you trouble?
1: Oh, man, I had a lot of guys that gave me trouble, more so that didn't get me trouble. I wasn't a big fan of facing – Facing the guys that threw the heavy two-seamers in on the hands, the 97, 98, 99 miles an hour, the Fausto Carmonas, the Jose Contreras, the guys that could really run the fastball, start it down the middle of the plate, and then run it in on the hands of the righty at high velocities. I didn't mind the sliders. I didn't mind cutters. I didn't mind facing lefties at all but facing, uh, facing those big righties. And that's another thing I would look for. When I would come up to the plate in the major leagues, and again, I'm talking about stuff at the major league level, not at the minor league level or even, obviously, high school. The first thing I would look for is the pitcher's hands. I would look to see how big the hands are and how much of the circumference of the ball their hands wrapped around. And obviously now with Trackman and Rapsodo – you can measure the spin and, and tell you know, if a guy's got life or has got movement, whatever. But back when I was playing, we didn't have that, that technology as readily available. But one thing I could tell you is if the, guy, if the pitcher had bigger hands, that ball was going to be, quote, unquote, heavier. It was going to run in on me a lot harder as opposed to a guy with small hands, even if the velocity was the same, say 97 miles an hour. I, maybe it was mental, but if I saw that you had small hands, I didn't really worry as much about that velocity as I did with a guy who was throwing 94 with big hands.
0: I am, I am writing all of this stuff down. Now the next question is I have a young hitter who's struggling to hit glove side or outside pitches. And he says he's struggling to dis- to try and figure out a fastball versus slider. He's 18 years old and he's just facing and finding out that the slider low and away is a tough pitch to hit. How do you teach or how would you teach younger hitters to start being able to take that baseball backside or what should they be doing on those pitches on the outer half of the plate?
1: The first thing I would say, and obviously I don't know, know who this is and, and, what they've been swinging at and, and, and facing. But the first thing I would say, and this goes with anybody, is self diagnosis. And self diagnosis in all facets of the game, right? And not only self diagnosis, but being brutally honest with yourself. So when you're saying you're not being able to hit that slider down and away, how many of those sliders down and away that you swung at are strikes? Because I can promise you there's not many guys in the world that can hit a slider down and away that's a ball. Is it we're swinging at the slider down and away too often, or is it we're seeing that one that's hanging on the outside corner and we're missing that one? So I think that's the first thing. When it comes to hitting tough pitches, for me, nine times out of 10, it was because I was swinging at a ball. I wasn't swinging at the strikes now we get into how can we pick it up? Where can we pick it up? What are we thinking? What's our approach? I always love when we talk about approach and everybody, that's the first thing everything says. Oh, you got to have approach. You got to have approach. Don't get off the fastball. That's contradictory. You're telling me I need to have an approach, but now you're telling me not to ever get off the fastball. If I never get off the fastball, how am I supposed to hit the nasty curve bar, the nasty slider, or the nasty changeup? So for me, my approach is knowing the type of pitcher I'm facing. If I'm going up there and I know this guy throws me, throws a lot of sliders, maybe we're in the fourth inning and he's got six strikeouts already and four of them are strikeouts swinging on the slider down and away, you know, chances are I'm, I'm going up there early looking to hit the fastball if that's kind of what he's established. And after that, I might need to start looking for that slider and start Tipping my cap if he throws me that fastball. I need to start now understanding what this pitcher is trying to do, what he's doing well, and if he's given up a few hits, what is he giving up the hits on? Has he given up the hits on hanging sliders, hanging curveballs? Okay. Now I've got, I've really got permission to go up there looking for that off speed because not only is he striking everybody out, maybe now I can not swing at it, but those are all the hits that are coming because he hangs it every once in a while as well. Those are types of things about building approach is understanding who we're facing, understanding the type of pitcher we're facing, and building the plan around it, but then also being understanding what I'm doing right now and what I'm not doing right now.
0: Butch, you want to fire away? I know you have a question there, Kevin.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Michael. Hi, Butch. Glad you're, glad you're on. And as a scout, I enjoyed your career. Thank you. I have two I have two questions for you. First one is about the major leagues. You were drafted in the first round. I think you're the pick number 9 mm-hmm. in 1997. You got to the big leagues quickly. You were in the big leagues in at 2001. And then in 2006 was like your breakout year where you went 24 and 109. What From the 2001 to 2006, what was the transition that you finally just like you came to be the Mike Kedier that the twins had drafted? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. And uh, we all have our stories. We all have our background. We all have the situations that we're in. 2001 was my September call up. 2002, Thought I was going to make the team out of spring training and ended up getting sent down. Went to AAA, had 22 homers and 70 RBI, at a break, got called up, and didn't really play that much. Got sent back down then called back up on August 31st because it looked like we were going to have a good shot to make the playoffs. And In order to be on the playoff roster, you had to get called up before September. I had a really good September, ended up starting the ALDS, starting in the ALCS, played well 2003 came around Corey Kosky was our, that was it. I was playing right field in 2002 Corey Kosky ended up getting hurt out of spring training in 2003 and I ended up going back to third base for two weeks and struggled and once Corey came off the DL the twins liked the way the outfield was so I ended up getting sent back to triple a and three four games in Into the AAA, my time down in AAA, ended up tearing my hamstring. Ended up missing 80 games, 75 games in AAA 2003. Once it got healthy, got called back up, DH'd one game in the ALDS. 2004, made the team out of spring training, and our team was pretty set in the sense of who was going to play what position. We made a trade the year before, got Shannon Stewart to play the outfield along with jock jones tory hunter our infield was pretty entrant and and pretty set so i was utility guy i played third played second played first played the outfield ended up finding a home at second base those last uh few the last month or so i played about 80 games 70 games at second base played every game in an alds at second base so now we're here three years in in the playoffs and three separate positions I'm starting in. 2005 was really my first opportunity to play every day, no strings attached. And I think everything's leading up to me telling this story. No strings attached. My first chance be to everyday third baseman. It's your job. Doesn't matter if you do well or don't do well. And to be quite honest, I just put so much pressure on myself that I, I had no choice after 100 games but for them to find another third baseman whether it was errors or not really very competitive at bats. I just didn't, just couldn't, I just cracked under the pressure that I was putting on myself and nobody was putting the pressure on me other than myself. And that off season, I, I looked myself in the mirror and we talked about being a self-evaluator and, and being brutally honest with yourself. I looked myself in the mirror and said, I can't go through this again. I can't go through this type of season again. I was staying up until six o'clock in the morning just so I didn't have to go to the field the next day so soon. So I was delaying the inevitable. So I told myself, this is not going to happen anymore. From that moment on, I committed myself to being just the absolute best teammate I could possibly be. I was going to get to the field. I was going to greet every security guard. I was going to greet every usher. I was going to smile. I was going to shake no matter if I felt bad or felt great. I was going to treat it as if I was, the luckiest person in the world to be able to step in, in into this stadium and rooted for my teammates, cared for my teammates. I think I had 20 at bats at the end of April. That's it in 2006, but I was in such a better place mentally that even though I had 20 at bats, I, I felt so much better than I did in 2005 when I was playing every day few guys get hurt May 1st, couple guys get hurt. I end up getting a chance to play every day. And as you mentioned, at right field, they didn't have a choice. I played every day in right field, ended up the season, the last five months of the season, drove in 100, scored 100, hit 24 homers, and then was able to take off after that. But had I not had that heart-to-heart with myself and truly committed to being a, the best teammate I could be, I don't know if I would even lasted through the 2006 season.
2: Mike, this, I hate to start talking, but this is unbelievable that you say this because we have a lot of young kids on this phone call that are in high school that are dealing with pressure and dealing with failure. And that's how I used you always say when I go watch minor league guys, this guy's down in the valley right now. Is he going to have enough makeup to get back to the top of the hill? Because once you get back up to the top of the hill, as you found out, it's just free sailing for you. Look like your numbers and you produced after you went through that rough time. Out. That was so honest of you to, to make that comment so these young guys can hear it and understand even to a guy that was a first-round pick, a big leaguer, you go through pressure moments, tough times, and it's how you deal with it. So thank you for saying that so they could hear that. No,
1: absolutely. There's a good analogy that I, I heard. I actually just heard it recently for any of you golfers out there. When they first invented the golf ball, it was smooth. It was a smooth golf ball and it would travel everywhere. As If if anybody's ever hit a golf ball that's smooth, you have no idea where it's going to go, right? It's just everywhere, scatters everywhere. But they saw that it would go everywhere. Boom, it'd get a nick here. It would get a dent here. It would get beat up and scuffed up. Then as they would hit it even more, it started going straighter and straighter. And the golf ball needed those bumps and bruises in order to have the full potential of what a golf ball was made to do. And we're no different. You need those bumps. You need those bruises. You need those hardships along the way in order for you to get to your maximum potential.
2: That's awesome. Then, that, that's awesome, Mike. Thank you. My next question is this. I heard you talk about cage and going into the cage and having a purpose. So I took that as like meaningful swings, Mm -hmm. not taking swings off. What kind of drills would you recommend to all of our kids on here that are listening that are daily type drills that are going to make them better where you talk about using the hands? Just different drills that you would recommend to these young boys to make them and help them get better. So when they do go live, they can just react
1: yeah that's the beautiful thing about baseball and i think walter mentioned it it, in the get-go if you ask 30 major league hitting coaches their opinion on hitting you're going to get 30 different answers because there are so many ways to hit and there are so many ways to think about hitting and the way i think about hitting is different than the way justin morno thinks about hitting And the things that I focused on and keyed on was completely different than the way David Wright focused on, what he focused on, what he keyed on. Our drills, our daily drills were totally different drills. And But I think the the one constant is we all had our routines for those drills. My routine, I'd get in there every day. I would take 15 swings where I'd hit it to the to, to where I'd have the tee set off a little back and a little bit on off the outside part of the plate, 15 balls to, I'd hit 15 balls to left, I'd hit 15 balls at the center, I would take 20, 25 flips, and boom, i go out for batting practice. David had a, a completely different routine where he would use more of his hands. He would work really trying to get his hands ready. That was his way of doing things. Justin Morneau would work he would just take hacks and and swing 200, 150, 200 swings prior to batting practice. So for me, the, the one thing I can tell you is that there are no absolutes when it comes to hitting the drills that I say that could work for me might not be the best drills for, for 10 year old John to do. Well, obviously T work is great. Obviously Flips are great. Side toss for me was great. There was a drill that I used to do when I was a kid where I would have my coach stand almost in the left-handed batter's box, and he would raise the ball, and when it got to chest high, he would drop it. And as he's raising the ball, that's when I would work on my timing, my load, and then I needed to be on time to be able to hit the ball when he dropped it. That was a drill that I lived on as a kid. I didn't do it hardly at all as a professional player. When I was a kid, I used to, Tony Townsend was a, was a coach in our area and he used to throw cool whip lids at us. So he would mimic sliders and curveballs and change ups. And that's what I would hit. I, David Wright and I, we grew up in the same area. We grew up hitting cool whip lids. Then when I got into pro ball, I don't think I ever saw a cool whip lid. So there's so many different things that, that you're gonna do, things that you lived on three weeks ago, you may not wanna do anymore. But the one thing I can honestly say that you have to have, the one absolute that there is, is to have a routine. Have something that you do do every day and stick with it every day. Might be T-work, might be flips, might just be going in there and taking batting practice. But I'm I'm sure you have certain drills that you do, but don't just do them one day here, one day there, two days there, and then miss five days. You got to do them every day in order for them to get into your mind and, and, and to be able to get it into a routine. And routines, by having that routines, it's something that you can always fall back on. That's what I talk about when, you're, when you talk about working in the, in, in the process oriented is knowing that you've done everything you can. You did everything that you need to do up to this point to get in the box and have confidence in yourself.
2: That's great stuff. Let me ask you just one more question, and it's about seeing a curveball, seeing it spin mm-hmm. yeah. and reacting to spin. What What would you tell young hitters
1: how to attack a breaking ball? Yeah, so for me it was never about spin. It was about shape. So I, I, I don't know, maybe I thought I had pretty good eyes. I think I'm 2015 was when I was playing in my eyes, so I thought I was pretty good, but I could never see spin. Unless it was like a a cement mixer and it had a big old circle coming at me, then I could see it. But even then, I wasn't seeing it enough to be able to react to it. But I could see shape. What I mean by shape, I could see the shape of maybe the the pitcher's hands. Maybe the pitcher's hand is a little more narrow on his fastball and a little more round on the off-speed pitch. Maybe the shape, especially in high school, the, the shape of the ball comes out a little higher on the off-speed pitch than it does on the fastball. And the fastball, it comes in at a little bit of a different – it comes out of his hand at a little bit of a different angle, almost a downward action, to whereas the the curveball or the slider, it comes in almost a little out of his hand, a little flatter, and then gets to being down. So, for me, it was always about the shape of the pitch as opposed to the spin of the pitch. You know, the shape of a a two-seamer – was going to come out and it was going to and it was going to be a little more horizontal. The shape was going to be a little more left to than it was vertical straight down. So that was kind of how I picked it up and I tried to pick it up as early as I could. I tried to pick it up from the hand because at least for me in my mind and in my vision the way I saw it, the shape of the hand oftentimes was different pitch to pitch.
2: So you were soft on the head until the the hand came up to the release point, and then your eyes went to the release point.
1: I was always staring. I, I as I'm thinking right now, as I'm looking, I'm always staring at the, the the pitcher's face. I'm always staring at their eyes, and then as and that's I'm always in that general area right at the head is where I was always staring, and and unless. There were certain guys that they had that real long arm, and this is even in the big league level, they have that real long arm action. I remember, I don't remember his first name, but his last name was Tejada. He was a right-handed pitcher, pitched for Texas. He pitched for Kansas City. Real long action and a really good changeup. But for a split second, if he was throwing that changeup, you could see his grip right before he comes in and throws the ball. So that would be the few times where my focus would shift from the guys from the pitcher's head area to behind his back, just to be able to try and get that glimpse of what the pitch was.
2: Thank you. Thanks for answering those questions, Mike. Appreciate
0: Mm it. Okay, I have a question here, Michael, and you mentioned that in the big leagues, you played multiple positions. At what age did did you start to learn to play multiple positions? When is it advantageous to begin to learn how to play multiple positions? Is that something you just did as a professional?
1: That's a great question, and I always answer that question. I learned how to play more, multiple positions about, I would say, about 10 years too late, maybe even longer than that, maybe 12 years too late. When I was a kid, I pitched. When I was a young kid, I pitched, I caught, and I played shortstop. As I got into be about 12 or 13, I stopped catching, I pitched, and I played shortstop. In high school, I pitched, I played shortstop. When I got into pro ball, I was 6'2", 215 pounds, 210 pounds. And just to give you a back, to talk about failing and talk about the bumps and the bruises, I made 61 errors my first year of pro ball at shortstop. So obviously the writing was on the wall. I was probably not going to be a major league shortstop. But I'd never played any other infield positions. So moving into third base was tough for me. It was closer to the ball. It was a different angle. It was extremely difficult for me to make that transition. I ended up doing it and making it, but it was tough. I remember 2001, Tom Kelly was our manager. He calls me into the coach's room to send me down from big league camp to minor league camp. He asks me a few questions if I think I can be the starting third baseman. I said, yes. Starting right fielder. I said, yes. Can I be the starting third baseman? I said, yeah. First baseman. I said, yes. He said no to every single one of those but what you can do is you can go down to double a and you can learn how to play second base. You can learn how to play first base. You can learn how to play third better and you can learn how to play the outfield because every single one of the guys that we have on our big league team at those positions is going to need a day off every eight to nine days. So if you're getting, if they're getting a day off every eight to nine days and you know how to play four position, you're playing four or five games a week. So that's how I got into the big leagues was because of that conversation. But I had to go and learn. I had to grind through the minor leagues. I had to grind through a lot of struggles to be able to learn those multiple positions. So to answer your questions, when do I think it's advantageous? I think it's advantageous today. No matter what age you are, no matter what level of of baseball you are at right now, today is the best day to learn multiple positions. And that's how we take Our younger kids right now, our younger kids, they play every single position. We don't have a shortstop. We don't have a third baseman. We don't have a second baseman or a center fielder. We have baseball players. And if you're a baseball player, you should be able to go out on the field and play baseball, no matter where it is.
0: Okay, so I just want to let parents know and student-athletes, what you just heard from a big leaguer, that piece of advice alone will make you a better baseball player. You, you, I mean, literally you cannot read this in a book. This type of information is definitely going to enhance the development of your son, or if you're a student athlete, of your career going forward. And recognizing the, the opportunity to get between the lines is is what matters most. Meaning don't pigeonhole yourself at a young age as you're a middle infielder only see the game from different positions allow yourself to be a student of the game while you're playing these different positions because it gives you a different perspective from it as a baseball player so another question here Michael is you alluded to the the fact that your son is 13 years old what are some of the intangibles or processes that your son is learning over and above just hitting as a result of you being a big leaguer?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, body language is, is one of the biggest things that we talk about with our kids. And we talk about it with the kids in this community is, is body language. Because body language is so important to, to let, if we're going to talk about scouts and college coaches, to let you know that you can rely on me and you're going to get a consistent person and a consistent player no matter if there's good or bad. And that's the thing too, is we all talk about body language as if you know, it's only, you're know only showing body language when you do something bad. You're only putting your head down or you're tossing your glove or you're throwing your bat or you're not running hard to first base. Well, body language is also when things are going good. All of a sudden now, you're the happy-go-lucky person who's roughhousing with your teammates and whatnot. Just be constant with the body language. And that's one of the intangibles that we're teaching our kids is is we need to, we need consistency out of you, not just consistency of the player you are, but we need the attitude to be consistent as well, because I need to be able to depend on you if things are going well or if things are going bad. So that's a big one. The number one thing that we talk about is, is body language. Number two is our kids, sometimes they're gonna play the bench. For me, playing, being on the bench, was what allowed me and opened my eyes up to how the baseball field moved. I call it breathing. But you're watching the prep steps of the infielders. You're watching the prep steps in the outfielders. You're seeing where everybody needs to go on cutoffs and relays. Was the third baseman in the right position? Was the first baseman in the right position? Was the shortstop where he needed to be? Now I'm studying all that. I'm studying how the field moves and how this, the field develops in the, in the the flow of the game. So now when I get back out there into my position, I now can make that flow and I can contribute to the flow as a way, to, as opposed to taking away from the flow. I think about that credit card commercial a few years ago where everybody's in line paying with the credit card, paying with the credit card, and then all of a sudden somebody comes out, pays cash, and everybody bounces into each other. That's kind of the same thing. We got a flow on the field. We got to know where everybody's going to be. And if you're that guy paying with cash, it messes up that flow, and, and you learn that by say, sitting on the bench and by watching the game and seeing how the game unfolds. So those are two of the things. One, body language, and number two, being okay with being on the bench, but understanding that there's a role that you play there as well.
0: Again, that is tremendous advice, tremendous insight. I'm going to keep going with these questions because they're backing up here. Did you as a younger player attend college camps or showcases and if so what did they teach you or how did they help you in your desire to be a player at a higher level
1: yes I did I I I always wanted to go to Florida State University and being from Virginia I I don't know why or where it came from I think I I liked it when Charlie Ward beat the Fighting Irish in 93 in, in football I wanted to go to Florida State So my ninth grade year, I went to Florida State's camp. I went there for a week. I think back then it's a a little different in the sense that it it was really instructional. There was obviously a lot of college coaches from the area that were the clinicians and the coaches for the teams, but they they really taught me a lot as well. But I went back as a sophomore, and so I went to that camp a couple years, and as far as Showcases were a lot different back then. Uh, we're talking in mid-90s, 95, 96. There were more individual showcases. There weren't team showcases back then. I'm sure there were, but I didn't play on one. So the showcases that I did, I went to a, a, a maybe two or three regional showcases, and I went to one national showcase. And, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to lie. they were. It was great for me. It was great for amateur career it got me noticed by usa baseball i got invited to the usa trials i made the 18u national team two years in a row my junior and my senior year and that kind of got me exposed on a national level but it was a little bit of a different dynamic it was a different totally different age and different era of showcases than it is now
0: Word on the street is that you were nicknamed the magician uh, because <laughs> of your card tricks at the Florida State campus. Is that true or false?
1: That's true. That's where it started. And it, they, those card tricks kept, treated me well throughout the, the course of my entire career. For a while there, I was I was debating whether or not to stop them because I was only known for card tricks. I was like, I got to play baseball too. I thought I was just being kept around because I could do some card tricks, but, but yeah, they, they treated me well.
0: You have some former campers, co-campers that uh, were with you at those Florida State camps. And they brought that to my attention. So I wanted to run that by you. Here's a young man that is, uh, I assume, a player at a high-level college. If you could give one piece of advice for an incoming – okay, he's a high school senior going into a high-level college program. If you could give one piece of advice for an incoming freshman to a top program as a positional player, what would it be?
1: Man, one piece of advice. I think I think the 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 play hard number one. I think I tell that to everybody is play hard. Understand that the team is always bigger than you. I don't know I'm getting more than one piece of advice, but there was there would be so many things that, that I would say. Number one, I the quicker you can lose this is this is a lot easier said than done. The sooner you can lose that sense of awe or that I can't believe I'm here type feeling, the better off you're going to be. And I I say that to guys that are getting called up from the minor leagues to the big leagues, the same thing. The sooner you lose that, the better off you're going to be while still appreciating where you are, if that makes sense.
0: I definitely know as a dad, I've had those discussions. And I think as a college coach, one of the things that I would always say to freshmen is, the sooner you feel yourself part of us as opposed to on the outside looking in, the easier it will be to adapt. And so from a big leaguer, that's, that's great advice. Okay, the next question that I have here is, how do you attack an inside fastball? Is Should you pull the fastball or the inside pitch or try to drive it back up the middle? I'm assuming he's coming at this as from a hitting lesson perspective. I paraphrased it. What should you do on an inside pitch? Do you let it get in inside on your hands, or do you hit it out in front, and what what are you trying to do with that particular
1: pitch? Obviously, you get these questions, and we talk about the variables. I – and without any context, inning, score, base runners – all of that needs to be accounted for. But without any of that, and without knowing any of that, just a generic inside pinch, what do I do with it? So the way I try and, and, and convey hitting baseballs is driving nails into a board. I don't want to come around it. I won't want to cut through it. I don't want to put these, these side spin on it if I don't have to. So – no, I don't want to let it get deep inside of me and bring my hands in and cut my hands in because all I'm trying to, all I'm doing there is now I'm putting side spin on it and I'm either going to hit it foul over to into the first base stands or I'm going to hit a weak ground ball to second or a little cue ball spinning to short. What I'm trying to do is I'm meeting it out in front, but I'm also not trying to get around it. I'm not trying to swing around it because then I'm putting the side spin the other way where it's going to hook. I'm trying to drive the middle of that ball with my barrel as if the barrel, the middle of my barrel is the end of a hammer. And I'm trying to drive that nail, which is the baseball, through the left field fence. And that's what, the way I used to think. And I, it, and I would aim a little bit for the bottom of the baseball as well, a little bit to the bottom third of the spear of the ball, and just try and drive that nail through that sphere of the ball. And if I do that, I'm going to hit a bullet to left, and that's all I cared about. I didn't worry about where it went after that. I just wanted to hit a bullet to left field on a ball inside without any other context.
0: At what age did you begin to think about hitting for
1: power? (laughs) Six years old. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, again, power, what is power? Is power hitting home runs? Then I never thought about power. Is power hitting the ball as hard as I possibly could? Six years old. Every single time I step into a batter's box, I tried to hit the ball as hard as I possibly could. Plain and simple. And I think if you have that feeling, if you have that mindset and you have that thought, you correct a lot of flaws. Because the only way to truly generate speed and power is by being efficient with your swing. A lot of times, when I would get in, when I would get into funks, and I, or I would get into to a slump, or I would struggle, and not I'm not talking about results. I'm talking about feeling like crap in the box. It was because I was just trying to make contact. I was just trying to survive up at the plate. I remember distinctly. I don't remember what year it was, but Derek Lee was playing for the Baltimore Orioles. And I was going through one of those times when I was just trying to survive. I was just trying to put the ball in play. I was just trying to get hits and here and there. And I remember he took three of the biggest hacks I'd ever seen. And it clicked in my head. And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I swinging like this? I got to swing. Well, baseball is the most violent sport in the world. We're just not taking it out on another human being. We're taking it out on an innate object a baseball. But they literally give you a club to go up there and swing in the club as hard as you can. Treat it like that. Again, what is power trying to hit the ball as hard as I can? Every single time I stepped in a batter's box, I tried to hit for power.
0: Okay. Other than T-work, are there any drills or routines that you work with your son as a 13-year-old or that you would, say, would would say will help younger hitters Yep. Is there any drills, whether it's front toss, side toss? I think that's what they're alluding to.
1: Sure, sure. And I, again, as I mentioned earlier, there are no absolutes. So I think you have to take each individual player and diagnose them. I think that's one thing that we miss a lot of times is we miss the diagnosis. We miss what does this player do? What does this player not do as well? And once you've diagnosed that now we can create a system to put in place of drills. My son, for instance, my son, what the one thing that I've worked on him with for years is having that same mindset that I just talked about, trying to hit the ball as hard as you possibly can. So the drills that I would do with him is less mechanical and more intent, hit the ball hard. And in that respect I would get, I would, I don't have that, and I haven't done this, but I've thought about having a radar gun for him to hit into. But it was for a specific reason. It's not for a showcase. It's literally to, to try and drive his intent at the box to try and hit the ball harder. Maybe I have a guy who that's all he tries to do, but it's super wild. So now I'll create a drill system of a little bit more controlled things. So maybe now we're working more, going to opposite field a little more intent, maybe one-arm drills, top-hand, bottom-hand drills, just to try and slow him down just a little bit, not to where I'm taking the aggressiveness out of him, not to where I'm trying to take the intent out of him, just so I'm trying to harness the control, trying to, I don't know if you watch Yellowstone, trying to get some one of those Colts to not buck me off every time, but I still want the power. I still want him to be able to use it but I want it to be a little more controlled. So I think we need to, you should diagnose what it is that, that you do, what it is you don't do so well, and then create a drill system based on that.
0: And I want to make sure that coaches that are listening, because I see a lot of coaches in here tonight, if you have a question and you didn't direct message me, please just request to ask your question and I'll pull you right up. The next question is from a parent who wants to know the role of, that the head position plays as a hitter. I think what he's trying to ask is the stillness of the the head while being violent underneath. So how do you teach a young hitter to be quiet, chin up, and everything below being aggressive and assertive?
1: Yeah, and and that's a great question. There's obviously drills you can do. And I, I think a lot of things, at least for me, are done right now during this time of the year when hopefully you're not playing in very many games. Hopefully you're not, you you have time to now make swing corrections and swing changes. I'm not a big proponent in making a swing change or, or drastic things like talking about head movement and head position during the season while you're still trying to compete. I think then that's when the tool belt is already made. You've already worn it. Now we got to go out and we got to make a masterpiece with the tools that we have. And maybe during the week we can tinker with things to try and survive and, and, and try and gradually get through the season. But right now is the time to do something like that. And I can bring you back to when I was trying to, to work on my swings, I would literally get a mirror and this is a good one for a head position. I would literally get a mirror and what I wanted to do was I wanted to, to work on my bottom half, my load. This was in 2008. I wanted to work on my bottom half, my load, and in my attack position. So I literally got a mirror, and I, I wrote myself an eight-week program. And it was the most boring program in the world, but is what I stuck to, and is what I did. So for the first two weeks, I got in front of this mirror 500 times a day. All I did was load. All I did was get on my back, my back leg. And then I'd get reset. I'd get on my back leg. I'd reset, but I'm looking in the mirror to make sure my head is not moving up or down. Then the next two weeks would be my stride. So I'd get on my load. I had a leg kick. I have a leg kick and I'd step back down and I'd reset and I would do that for the next two weeks and then so on and so forth until I finally got it two months later to where I was swinging. I had a bat in my hand. So That's the only way I know how to do those things is by doing it repetitive every single day as you're watching and getting feedback for yourself. So that's what I would advise. If your head's moving a lot, especially in your load, right now, get yourself a mirror, get in your bedroom, get in front of a mirror, and just do that. Just load and make sure your head's not moving.
0: Okay, college freshman, wondering about, as you just talked about, so I guess it's a coincidence, uh, as you just discussed, when it's time to work, which is your off-season, you're trying to do get your work in. During a fall break or during your off-season, did you take what you felt needed to be worked on from your previous season's work or di- is there a, a different approach? That, did you clear your mind and try to work on newer things or newer techniques going into the next season. At what point do you put last year behind you and and try to focus on becoming better for your next year?
1: So at what point do I put last year behind me? I never put last year behind me. I was always trying to build on last year, but in saying that it was the way I felt, not my numbers. I never brought my numbers with me and carried them over, but I, like for instance, at 2008, I thought I had more in the tank that I could get to more balls and I had a, an idea in my head how I was going to be able to do that. So I, I created that system for me. Ultimately, it did not work. So the first spring training was okay. The first three weeks, four weeks of the season, it wasn't working. So I had to go back to what I was doing before, but you can't be afraid to try something different that you feel is going to work. You can't be afraid to always be trying to push the envelope to get better. For instance, if you hit 300, you can't be afraid, man, If man, I think I can do a little tweak here where I can do a little bit better. I can feel a little better. I can get to more balls. I can get to this pitch a little easier, a little more efficiently if I make this adjustment. You can't be afraid that this adjustment is gonna actually make you move back a couple spaces. Because you can always go back to where you were. You can always go back to baseline, but you'll never get and reach that height if you're not afraid to continue to build on every single year. So to answer your question is, I was always looking to build. I was always looking to get better. I was always looking for an edge somewhere, whether it's mechanically, whether it's mentally, whether it's fundamentally, emotionally. I was always looking for, for some way, somehow to get a little bit better every offseason.
0: Okay, Michael. So here's the question that I've been asked probably by 10 different people, and I'm going to politely ask it. And I just want because everybody's requesting that I ask this particular question. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give for parents in trying to select private instructors, especially when they comment that they know more, may know more about hitting than MLB hitters and or coaches? And do you only And do only what the instructor tells them instead of what an advanced slash MLB hitter does. How do you, how would you answer that question?
1: I think the first thing, first and foremost, like I said out the very beginning, there are no absolutes in this game. There's not absolutely one way to hit. You know, what, what I would give a kid in a lesson or what I would give a player in a lesson may not work for the next lesson, or it may not work for that particular player they may my my lingo my my attitude my personality might not jive with that player so there are no absolutes in this game there are no in my opinion smarter people than other smarter people like uh, than other people there there might be people with more experience there might be people that have worked with other players and have had things work, work for them. But if ultimately, if you're picking coach based on solely on the players that they've had before, then I think that's a good initiation, but if it doesn't work, if you're not jiving with it, I wouldn't stay with that person just because they have got a scholarship or so-and-so played in the major leagues. And I also would be worried of anybody that were to say, there's only one way to do this and you have to do it this way and can't work with what you have innately and your athletic ability. Not all of us are athletic at the same level of athletes of each other, but not all of us have the same flexibility around their T spines. Not everybody's hips are as flexible as others. You know, what, what I, where I might be able to get a lot of separation and a lot of the rubber band effect, quote, of, quote unquote, maybe somebody else physically can't get to that point with their body. So to say you have to hit this way, or you have to do that without an understanding of who the player is and what the player can and can't do, then those are the types of, of instructors. And I would even say this at, at the major leagues that I'd be weary of. But the best instructors I ever had were the ones that could work with me and then work with somebody else who is a completely different hitter than me and be able to have us both succeed.
0: I think that's a critical component for parents and student athletes to understand that truly every hitter is unique, size, strength, eye-hand coordination, etc. And until you have an evaluation and an understanding of not only what your strengths are, but where your weak links may be, and then have that coach and or instructor be able to disseminate information in a way that the student-athlete can implement into his or her own body is really important because I think Michael would be the first to tell you that if a major league hitting coach could make every hitter a Maurer, a Kadire. A guy that could go out there, roll out of bed and hit 280 plus, he would do it and he would be paid millions and millions of dollars because your lineup would be just guys hitting tanks and getting knocks all over the ballpark. It is a skill, but it is a craft. It is an absolute craft. So hitting is not one person will ever have all the answers. They may have thoughts and opinions, but each hitter is unique, and the best coaches are able to work with multiple styles and and body types and be able to bring the best out of that individual hitter as opposed to making each hitter hit one specific way. So I don't want to take up too much more of Michael's time. I've been very generous, but I do have a young man that has a question, and I know he is a he puts a lot of time into his hitting, and his question is, you played with great players like Maurer, Morno. How did you use your teammates' knowledge and skills to help you become a better player and hitter?
1: No, that's a tremendous question. I, I think one of, the, one of the guys that I was really learn, lean on is Jim Tomey. And he would have specific things about he, – he really believed in getting the ball out in front. Boom, he just hit the ball out in front, whether it's hitting it oppo, whether it's pulling it, whether it's hitting it up the middle, get the ball out in front. With Morneau, the intent. He was always up there looking to drive in a run, no matter what. He was always looking up there to, to figure out a way. If a guy was on first, I'm going to figure a way to score him. If the guy's on second, I'm going to figure a way to score him guys on third, I'm gonna hit a ground ball to second, or I'm gonna hit a sack fly, I'm scoring that guy. His intent was to drive in runs. And I was able to, to learn on that and take that. Two of the two of the guys that I learned the most from and, and really changed my career. Unfortunately it was in the latter half, not even the latter half, the latter the latter fourth of my career was Troy Tulowitzki and Carlos Gonzalez when I went to Colorado. In Minnesota say we're facing Justin Verlander we're thinking about it, man. We got Verlander today. Let's figure out a game plan. Da da da. da. But when I went to Colorado and you're fa- you're with Tulo and Cargo, and we're facing Clayton Kershaw, nobody even thought twice about it. No, it was no. There was never a discussion. There was never, all right, man. We got Kershaw today. Let's go figure out it's Just just go out and play. And something that really resonated with me. Why? Yeah, why? I'm a big leaguer, just like he's a big leaguer. He's preparing me for me, just like I'm preparing for him. Why do I need to get psyched out a little bit? And I tell that to kids now, like in the high school level, oh, we're facing a guy throwing 90 today. Yeah, but you struck out against a guy throwing 90. You've also struck out against a guy throwing 71. What's the difference? Go out there and compete. So that was a big time lesson that I learned from those two guys. And when I went there, after listening and hearing them, that's when I won the batting title and because I, I had that mindset where, man, I'm just going to go out there and I'm just going to compete against these guys. It doesn't matter who's on the mound.
0: Okay, we're going to wrap up with this one. Unless anybody has any other questions because I'm just looking at everybody's question. And I want to let some student athletes know there are former big leaguers on this call tonight that have been listening in. There are college coaches that are listening in. There are high school head coaches that are listening in. And so I want you to understand, my point being is we're always learning. Baseball is an endless stream of questions. And when we open our ears and our eyes, I think one of the best things I took away from tonight with, when Michael was speaking about being on the bench and watching the game breathe And that is so powerful. And we get consumed with being between the lines, but sometimes we're not prepared to be between the lines. And rather than sulking or being upset that we're in a dugout, being able to watch the game and learn, I just, I found that fascinating. And the more I host these events and we listen to former major leaguers, former high-level college coaches, junior college coaches, NAIA coaches. I continue to learn not only about the enthusiasm that they possess to play and and teach the game, but the lessons that they have learned and that they're willing to share with us. I, I find that to be probably the most fascinating dynamic of these discussions. And the last question pertains to last evening, Michael, Butch had Pat Casey on a similar call and Pat discussed about mindset getting into the batter's box. And he said, and I'm gonna use his words, (laughs) I'll paraphrase, don't be small-minded getting into the box. Have a plan, have an approach, have a a plan, but be strong-minded. The question from a young student athlete is when you're facing a pitcher that's throwing really hard. How do you get into the pitcher's head to get him to throw you a pitch that you might be looking for?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think the first thing we need to understand, baseball is the, the only sport where the offense is on defense. Now I want you to think about it for a second as a hitter. We're on defense. Pitcher's got the ball. Pitcher knows where the ball's going. Pitcher knows what he wants to do with the ball. He can throw it when he wants to throw it. He can throw it where he wants to throw it. And we have to react to it. One of the breakthroughs that I had as a hitter was when I understood that I can't go and impose my will on somebody who's got a baseball in his hand. I have to react to what he's trying to impose on me. So, I can't go up there and try and get in his mind to throw me the pitch where I want it and when I want it. So now I have to figure out what his will is and what he wants to do to me, and then i got to counter that one and react to that. And how do I do that? First, I need to study the catcher. What does the catcher like to call? Where does the catcher like to stand? I used to watch the catcher to see if he was looking at the guys in front of me, the guys on the team. I'd look and see if he's staring at my at your feet. So if he's staring at your feet and then he gives a sign, now I know I can play with that catcher. So if I want the ball inside, maybe now I can stand on top of the plate, knowing that the catcher is going to stare at my feet, put the sign in, fastball in, and then right as the guy's in his windup, I can back away from the plate. Now I've got a better idea, at least I've got a chance, that I'm going to get the ball inside, and that's where I can look. If a catcher – I study how to see how the catcher hits what is the catcher struggle hitting? If he gets a guy in scoring position, what does he struggle with? What does he do well with? Whatever he does well with, typically he's not going to call those pitches when I get a guy in scoring position. And typically whatever he struggles with, that's what he's going to call oftentimes. And I'm not talking about guys with advanced analytics in the big leagues, but I'm talking about high school level, college level. Those are types of, of edges, so to speak, you can look for to try and get it the pitcher to throw what you want him to throw or you're expecting him to throw and the other thing is don't be afraid to go up there and hunt pitches if you got a good idea that this guy's going to throw you a changeup, it's okay to to take a fastball for strike two it's all it's fine because if you got that good of an idea that he's going to throw you a change up and he throws it to you then you should be able to do some damage with it So studying the game, studying the catcher, studying the pitcher, seeing what the pitcher's doing in the bullpen. What is he getting over for strikes? What is he getting – what is he not getting over for strikes? What is he spending most of his time with? I know if a guy's in between innings and he throws four, five curveballs in his eight pitches that he's going to throw, he's probably struggling getting the curveball over. So maybe I can eliminate that pitch. Those are the types of things that I'm, I'm looking for if I don't have all the, the, the scouting and the, the data that we've got at the major league level. Those are the things I'm looking for. And the other thing I'm looking for is a stat line. So of high school, I'm looking at the stat line. If a guy's got two strikeouts to every innings pitched, and he's got not very many walks and he throws a fastball slider and a changeup and he throws decently hard, I need to be aggressive early because I don't want to get deep into the count off this guy because probably going to get a slider down in the dirt. That not many other people have ever laid off of, which is why he's got that many strikeouts. So those are the types of things you're looking at in order to formulate and build a plan. It's it's studying everything around it. And that's why the swing, the swing gets done in the off season. Once the season starts, now we go to hit. Now we learn how to be a hitter. And that's the best way I can answer that question.
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna join in and have a similar opinion. As Coach Harvey, the the art or the practice of studying the game, I, I just think it's a lost art. It, it's not something that's done because a lot of student athletes and coaches. I think the analytic, the data that's collected, it I don't want to say makes can make players lazy or can make coaches lazy, but that one five-minute discussion that we just heard that will make you a better player there are some gems in there that if you're a younger player studying the game is something that will definitely elevate you as a player as a student of the game and to me that's That information right there is going to, if you find your way to this via a podcast in the future, go back and replay that because that is worth re-listening to again and again. So, Michael, I want to say thank you. I don't know how you found your way here last week, but I, for one, am greatly (laughs) appreciative of the fact that you took the time here this evening. And it it definitely has, I, I have a whole page of notes here. And definitely will help me as far as in, in some instruction that I do. I have there's a whole list of questions, but we don't want to run past we're well past an hour. And I appreciate you taking the time. And I wish you uh, a happy holiday, uh, Merry Christmas, a happy New Year, and anything that I can ever do. Whether we can do this again uh, in the future, I'd be happy to do so because you, sir, definitely have been a breath of fresh air with regard to. The, uh, the hitting Twitter uh, way of life as we've seen it the last few days. So I appreciate you taking the time tonight.
1: No, I appreciate you having me. And you talk about how I found my way here last week. I can't reiterate what you just said prior enough. And it's the desire to learn and keep learning. I'll never, ever step foot in a batter's box again in a competitive situation, but I can't get enough of it. I can't stop learning and whether that's learning to be able to help somebody else or just my passion for curiosity. And like you said, I think that in itself will continue to have a passion for the game, continue to have a passion to help people in this game. And I would love to, to do this again. And, and most definitely, I will probably be a listener weekly. So don't be afraid to call on me when you see me in the room.